Well, we're fortunate tonight to have a, say, an excellent speaker. It's uh, Rod Clifton, senior editor at the Frontier Center for Public Policy and a professor emeritus at the uh, University of Manitoba. Uh, Rod uh, received his B.Ed. Masters and Masters from the University of Alberta, and he has accrued not one but two doctorates, one from the University of Toronto and the other one from the University of Stockholm, where they lived for some time. He was awarded a Spence Fellowship from the International Association for the Evaluation of Education Achievement, um, an RH Award from the University of Manitoba, an RWB Jackson Research Award from the Canadian Educational Researchers Association, and both an Edward Sheffield Award and a Distinguished Research Award from the Canadian Society for the Study of Higher Education. Rod has uh, written for numerous newspapers and journals. I won't go through the complete list, but just a couple. Canadian Journal of Education, Policy Options, Sociology of Education, and the National Post and the Winnipeg Free Press. He's also written books, uh, listing it quickly here, Socioeconomic Status, Attitudes in Education Performance, Comparison of Students in England and New Zealand, Authority in Classrooms, Cross Currents, Contemporary Canadian Educational Issues, and a Recent Social Trends in Canada. His most recent, recent book, wrong, What is Wrong with Our Schools and How Can We Fix Them, was published in 2010 and was written with uh, the assistance of Michael Swagstra and John Long. And with that uh, short introduction, I give you Rod Clifton. Thank you, Jeff. The, the reason you do two PhDs, right, is because when, when you do an undergraduate degree, you learn a little bit about a lot of things. And then when you do a master's degree, you learn a lot about a fewer things. And then when you do a PhD, you learn absolutely everything about nothing. And then when you do a second PhD, it's like uh, uh, the square root of minus one, right? It's uh, one iota of material that you, that you know about. So tonight I want to um, thank Graham and uh, for that too warm introduction and to thank you all for inviting me. I'm going to speak for about 12 minutes or 15 minutes, very short, and then uh, have some uh, questions and, and, and responses on this. You've seen on the, on the um, uh, brochure that I'm going to talk about residential schools. I'm going to talk about one specific aspect of residential schools and only uh, that aspect. So the question that I've got uh, for the presentation is, what is in a school's name? That's the, that's the question I'm asking. And I'm going to have an introduction, then I'm going to have an argument and a conclusion, and I'm going to tell you when I'm making those changes so you can actually follow the structure of uh, the argument that I'm going to make. And I've got some parenthetic comments that I'll mention that these are in parentheses and they're kind of asides to really try to bring you in. So I'm going to try to engage you in uh, the presentation rather than just talk to you uh, for, a for a while. This is, these strategies are teaching strategies and I was a teacher for 40 years uh, having taught public school and then taught uh, uh, at universities for 
over 40 years so this is part of uh, what I'm doing. We just finished Christmas, right, for most of us. Uh, the people that follow the Julian calendar are having Christmas on Sunday and uh, so it's a good uh, opportunity to ask, uh, to test our knowledge about Christianity and Christian charity and since it's a charitable organization it's probably a good idea to ask about uh, charity there. So the question is, and here's a question that you can ponder, when the Christian churches created schools in Canada, what names did they give those schools? So I'm going to give you a few seconds. You could even talk to each other if you're bold enough to do that. You think about it for a while, and you think that um, they named them after saints, right? So we've got St. Ignatius, and we've got uh, St. Paul, and a whole bunch of other names that they... Christian calendar, days of the Christian calendar, like Assumption, those kinds of things, and important church leaders. And you think about the Christian names that were given, the names that were given to uh, the, 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 the schools that were started in Canada, you would get part marks for if you got those three, because they're other names, and they're important names. So give yourself part marks if you thought that it, the schools would be named after saints, days of the Christian calendar, or important church leaders. Now I'm going to go into my argument. So I'm going to take a step to the left and come at it from another perspective. So you have to hold on to your hats as we go around the corner. Uh, two years ago, a uh, very important commission met in Canada called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, which was about residential schools in the country. And they produced a report that was, it took six years for them to actually, and they spent $60 million producing a report that's 3,500 pages long in seven volumes. It's a huge report. Well, really, it's not a report. It's a dump. They dumped all kinds of information into the report and put covers around the various volumes, and that's they call a, a report. Probably not very many people have read that report. Um, it's pretty difficult going. But let me read the first couple of sentences from the introduction volume. Okay? So you have to pay attention to this very carefully. Quote, For over a century, <coughs> the central goals of Canada's Aboriginal policy were to eliminate Aboriginal government, governments, ignore Aboriginal rights, terminate the treaties, and through a process of assimilation, cause Aboriginal people to cease to exist as distinct legal, social, cultural, religious, and racial entities in Canada. The establishment and operation of residential schools were the central elements of this policy which can be best described as cultural genocide. Those are the first two sentences in both the summary volume and in the first volume of the report. The commission then goes on to define what cultural genocide is and they say, quote, the destruction of those structures and practices that allow the group to continue as a group. After hearing these two sentences, you obviously think, as I think, that the names would be all 
the, all, 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 the, all the schools that these people created would be named after the fallen angel Lucifer and uh, would have no other names, right? <coughs> the commission obviously believed that Canada, <coughs> Canada and the churches that managed most of the schools considered indigenous people to be subhuman. And this is why the children were treated so badly. So that's basically what the argument is. This is the story that we've heard over and over and over again from a way before um, the, uh, the uh, uh, Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission published their results. The question I have, is it true? Is it true? So maybe, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Let's take a look at it. Now some people would probably recognize that when you put the conclusion to an argument at the front end of it, you're engaging in what is called a logical flaw. And that is the all or nothing fallacy. Something's either all good or all bad. And various people, including all of us, probably have a position on that continuum. Not everybody has a position on one side or completely on the other side, but we all have a position on that continuum. And what we hear in the news uh, reports and in the, in the, in the, on the radio, and if you, look at, if you listen to Unreserves about the Aboriginal pro program that, that uh, Rosanna Deerchild is on, it's pretty, pretty, pretty negative. So <coughs> it's interesting that there was a judge, Justice Sinclair, and a lawyer, Wilton Littlechild, who I went to school with, him and I were uh, students together at the University of Alberta, and we knew each other at that time, a lawyer would make such an obvious fallacy, fallacious argument. Nevertheless, if people read the report, they would realize that the strong claim, either all good or all bad, is not supported by the evidence, that the evidence is really mixed. It is not until volume four, 2,200 pages, after those first two sentences, that you get the names of the 158 uh, schools that were run by both the federal government and by the various churches. So they don't put, as in most uh, reports of this type, you put all of the important evidence at the beginning and then have the conclusion flow out of the evidence what they've done is they put the conclusion at the beginning and then had the evidence flow out of that. And if you read the report, uh, the report doesn't really support this conclusion uh, to the degree that they think it does. Now, let's then go to the names of the schools. What were they named? There were saints. There were quite a few saints. St. Cyprian, St. Mary, St. Paul's, there's lots. There were religious days, All Saints, Assumption, and a number of that. There were uh, religious leaders, uh, uh, Bishop Grolier, Bishop Stringer, and a number of other religious leaders were named. Yet you may be surprised to hear that about 30% of the institution had indigenous names. So 30% of the institutions had indigenous names. Did you hear that in the public press, in the whole discussion? for the last two or three years? Probably not. There were fa famous chiefs, so Crowfoot and Old Son, which are Blackfoot chiefs 
uh, the two schools on the Blackfoot Reserve are named, the Anglican school was named Old Sun and the, and the Catholic school was named Crowfoot. There were tribes and bands, there was Assiniboine, there was Mohawk, and there was places like Wabaska and Aquaset. So there were a number of, uh, of, of uh, names of the institutions that were Aboriginal names. By now, I hope that you're wondering, why would churchmen who were intent on discriminating against and decimating indigenous peoples and their culture would give indigenous names to the many schools and residents? Interesting question, right? Political correctness is an obvious answer. Uh, we do that just to keep people happy about things, so we uh, do things that make them feel good. Uh, sociologists call it impression management. You know, just politicians are good at that. But if you if you if you look at the history of the schools, the first school that was created in Canada was created in 1836, and it was an Anglican residential school. It was called the Mohawk Institute, named after a group of people. And that was long before correctness, political correctness, was ever dreamed up. As you are pondering that question and the answer to the question, uh, you can think about a couple of related questions. First, if church leaders were truly hostile to these people, why did so many of them learn the languages and write grammars and create orthographies for indigenous languages. And I brought one for you. I don't know if you've ever seen. This is an orthography for Blackfoot, which is the language my wife speaks. And it was written by uh, the Anglican priest in the 18, um, it was published in 1889. And this is the actual book, the first edition of that book. So it's got an orthography that this priest wrote for the Blackfoot which allowed them to record things for themselves in their own language, as well as allowed other people to learn the language a lot easier than if they just simply listened to it. So why would, why would people who didn't like Aboriginal people do things like this? And if you look at this, this is a very complicated, it's a very complicated language. It's a tonal language, so things are said at different tones and mean different, different kinds of things. And it's a lot of work to actually do that. Now, you could say, well, because they wanted to Christianize them, make sure they got to, into heaven, and that would be uh, an appropriate thing, because that's probably true. <coughs> the second question is, why did so many school administrators allow, and proudly allow, their children to be named by Aboriginal elders with Aboriginal names? Names that these kids knew for the length of their lives. Why would they do that? if they thought that these people were not human. Third, why do these children who are now quite old still remember their indigenous names and still contact the children of the men and women who named them? Why are they still friendly over this 50, 60, 70 years that they've done? Of course, as Canadians, we know that in indigenous names are very common in our country. The word Canada, for example, is an indigenous name. So is Manitoba, so is Winnipeg, so is Saskatchewan, so is Saskatoon, so is Ottawa, so are the small, two small towns at Alberta, Okotoks, 
which means big rock, and Paroka, which means elk. They're both Blackfoot names. And we've got thousands and thousands of these names across the country. So the list is very long and very extensive. Conclusion. This leads me to my conclusion. My intent, parenthetically, is to have you come to the same conclusion that I've come to. And I want to give you a think, a, a, a moment just to think about what, what your conclusion is. My conclusion is, perhaps the commission began its work with a conclusion in mind and wrote that in the first paragraph of its report and then it spent six years and over sixty million dollars amassing evidence to support that conclusion. Perhaps it overlooked contrary evidence in a rush to condemn Canada and the churches. I've just given you one piece of evidence and if you remember logic if you took logic in, in university, if you've got a general proposition like all swans are white and you can produce one black swan, you actually destroy that argument. So one counterexample will destroy uh, an argument. <clears throat> I want to remind you that the first paragraph of the TRC report uses very inflammatory language that has shaped the extremely negative opinion of both the government of Canada and the Canadian churches. Let me reread one sentence, Canada, one sentence. Canada and the churches caused, quote, Aboriginal people to cease to exist as distinct legal, social, cultural, religious, and racial entities. Think about that for a second. It's obviously not true. If it was true, we wouldn't have a TRC report and we wouldn't have uh, legal cases and those sorts of things. So it's obviously not tree, true, that point. Nevertheless, many Canadians and church leaders, including the leaders of the churches that manage the schools and residents, believe it is true. Because of this, it is time for Canadians, particularly journalists and academic researchers, who should know better to take a much closer look at the TRC report rather than merely reading the summary volume and the introduction to Volume 1, and then echoing the Commission's words. Researchers must be informed, critical, aware. Consequently, they need to be judicious, weighing the evidence, pro and con, before coming <coughs> to conclusion. A conclusion that is not burning with condemnation, a conclusion that is more balanced. Finally, perhaps Canada needs, and, and the churches need, and they deserve a little Christian charity, especially at this time of the year. They're not getting very much of that. And uh, people that raise this in the church are not getting very much charity anyway, so we could start there. Now I've got a postscript just to fill you in on sometimes. Uh, Graham told you about um, <coughs> my educational experiences and things like that. I, I was in a cross-cultural education program as an undergraduate and I had to do an in-service for a summer and I worked on the Blackfoot Reserve and I lived in Old Sun during that summer and there were kids in the, in the residential school. Uh, after that, since I was supposed to be paid by Indian Affairs and they're decidedly slow on everything, and does everybody know that? That part of it is true. Um, they never paid me at the end of the summer so I couldn't go back to school and I got a job in, um, in Anuvik at Stringer Hall, which is the, resi the Anglican Residential School in Anuvik. And I worked there 
for a year and for $300 a month, which I pay back $50 for board and room, I looked after 85 kids in three dormitories, 22 hours a day, six days a week for 10 months. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm not bitter about it, but uh, just letting you, letting you know what it was like. I kept detailed notes about what was happening in the school. I give those notes to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, so it's, it's filed with those people. <clears throat> My wife, who is Siksika, who is Blackfoot, uh, spent uh, 10 years in, um, in residential school, in the uh, Anglican Residential School in the Blackfoot Reserve, Old Sun. And she used to say, before it became too difficult for her to say this, People would say, did you go to residential school? And she would say, no, I didn't go to residential school. I went to a private Anglican school. Uh, she no longer says that because it's uh, too, uh, too fiery. So <clears throat> I went to these, uh, these places and worked in this way because I think uh, the motto that you people have for Rotarians, service above self, is what people were doing there. And many of the people who were working in the schools were doing it not because it was good for their health, not because they were going to make a lot of money, but because they were helping kids. And um, many service organizations, Anglican service organizations, did the same kind of meetings that you have that uh, collected money and, and created gifts that were sent to kids, these kids in the, in, in, in the residential schools. And I remember fondly the Christmas that we had in Anuvik and the gifts that were provided for the children uh, there. Many of the people who went there and worked in these places are people just like you and I. They're no different. They've got positive things and negative things. All of the kids weren't abused and all of the people who worked in the institutions didn't abuse people even though that seems to be the general impression in the, in the, public, in the public media now. So that's it. Thank you. So, any questions or? Uh, Did you read all of the volumes? I haven't read all of the volumes. I've read uh, about twelve hundred pages. Yeah, I've read volume four, which is about the uh, uh, the death of the children. Uh, and over the period of time, we don't really know how many kids actually went to the school. Uh, the report itself gets their number from a speech that the, that the Prime Minister gave, if you could imagine. <laughs> that's the only number that they've got, 158,000. But it's not clear whether that's, whether that's the enrollment over all the years or that's the, the, the number of different kids that were in the school. Uh, in the schools, there were 3,201 uh, children uh, reported to have died in the schools. And you have, to, you have to realize that most of these schools, the great bulk of them, had infirmaries. So when kids got sick, they went to the infirmary in the school. Uh, in the public schools, when kids got sick, they went home. And uh, so kids would die in the school, whereas in the public school, they wouldn't die in the school. Yeah. So. Is, is that a big number? When you look at the records over the period of time, uh, the great bulk of kids died as a result of uh, 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 communicable diseases, tuberculosis, influenza, those kinds of diseases. So it's higher than the general population, but their immunity probably wasn't 
too too good and and obviously when they're in residential school they're together so diseases would would, would pass around now do you have anything to say about senator lynn Bayek's uh, treatment by the media uh, I think it's pretty outrageous, and I just heard on the radio coming over that somebody's going to be on, as it happens, uh, contradicting her. An Aboriginal person is going to be on the radio contradicting her. Um, I, c I could give a, a couple of little stories about, uh, her, I don't know if you know what, what she said. She said some, there were some good things that were done in, in residential school. Who was that again? Uh, Senator, Senator Lynn Bayak. She's from Northern Ontario, and uh, yeah, it's been quite outspoken in terms of in saying that some good things. Stuff. There was a, a young fellow in my dorm who, when I got kids up in in, in to go to, to to get ready for school, he said he wasn't feeling very well, so I, he stayed in bed and got the other kids, the other 84 kids, lined up and down uh, to the dining room and eating and come back and, and, and he said he wasn't feeling very well so I helped him up the stairs to the second floor of the residential school. <coughs> the infirmary was up there and <coughs> our nursing sister had come from London, England to, uh, <laughs> to be the nursing sister and she was, she was a year older than me. She was, she was 23 and I was 22. Some of the kids were, were, were older than I was Anyways, I took her down to Miss Malik's um, office and I said, um, young fellow's not feeling very well and uh, he doesn't want to go to school. And he wasn't kind of a malinger. There were some kids that, that didn't like going to school and they weren't doing very well and so they would try to get out of school and they would you know, try to play uh, games with uh, supervisors. Um, uh, she got him to the hospital. There's a hospital in Nuvik and they had an emergency surgery and took out his appendix his appendix had broken, so if he was out on the trap line with his parents, obviously he wouldn't have made it, he would have died. Um, another quick story on this. Um, one of the girls that was in the Roman Catholic school, Grolier Hall, uh, told me, who's a friend of ours, and she lives here in Winnipeg, that she was being abused in her community and in her own home because by her step-brothers. Uh, and when she went to residential school for the first time in her life, she had a bed of her own and clean sheets every week. Now, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it was certainly the kids appreciated uh, that. Many of the kids come into the residential school uh, from the Barons. The, the Anglican school had a larger group of uh, Inuit children because the Anglican missionaries had gone across uh, the top of Canada and the Catholics had uh, focused their attention on the on the Mackenzie River Valley so they had many more uh, Denny kids and the Anglicans had many uh, kids from across across the top of the uh, of Canada the Inuit kids many of these kids came into residential school with bug bites so bad on their head that you couldn't run their your hands through their hair They've been standing in smoke uh, smudges all summer to keep out of the bugs, and and they had infected bug bites. Some of the kids had ear infections so bad, and if you read any of the ethnographies about Aboriginal people, they have shorter eustachian tubes, 
So they would get infected ears and they would often go deaf and they had pus running out of their ears. So when they come to the school, these things were cleaned up. Now, I, if it was me, I would say it's an advantage, but those are judgment calls um, to have those clean, cleared up before uh, kids actually go deaf and thanks. <coughs> Where to from here, Rod? Where to from here? Because you put forward very, some very interesting points. And if one took a dispassionate, you know, sort of scientific view of things, like you sketched in some respects, anthropologically or not that right, I mean sociologically or whatever, where could this go from here? Is it possible with such a vast tome that may have good things and bad things and overall probably not that great, which is what's come out in the public eye? But wouldn't it be better for this to be mitigated over time uh, by further <coughs> examination, like you've partially done, yeah. and uh, maybe even as, as uh, somebody getting you know, university degrees and master's degrees and PhDs in, in the study and the sort of fallout of the TRC report? Is it yeah. where, where, where could this go from here? Yeah. Uh, where could it go? First of all, the, the commission itself says we have to have the truth before we can, we can get reconciliation. And my concern is that the people of Canada are not actually getting the truth. So that would be the first step, is to see that it is more subtle and it is more nuanced than you've heard in the public press. And that would be one thing. The second thing that I <coughs> worry about is uh, what we're actually doing to the Aboriginal people. What we've done is we've created a situation in which they make attributions about their success or failure in the world on the basis of three things. First of all, whether that success or failure is changeable by themselves or not, whether it is stable or unstable, and whether it is controllable or uncontrollable. So one of the principles of psychology is, in cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, for example, is that you've got to change the way you think about things in order to pull yourself <coughs> up by the boots. And what we're actually reinforcing in Aboriginal people is that their success are related to things that they cannot change. And those things are, first of all, colonialism, and the second thing, residential schools. And they can't do anything about that. And therefore, this is a good explanation that of their lack of success, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. What they have to have is they have to think, as many successful Aboriginal people have, that they can actually do something about it. The third thing that we're going to do is we're going to empower large Aboriginal organizations. We paid $4.6 billion to the individuals who went to residential schools. So there were two programs in there. One for the people who just went. They got $10,000 for the first year or part of the year for attending these schools. And then $3,000 for each year or part of the year after that. The other group were uh, the group who claimed that they were uh, badly treated, either sexually or physically or all kinds of other things. Uh, there's not much evidence in the report on the sexual bad, bad treatment that people 
have, though we as Canadians think that virtually every child was being abused in this sort of way. I don't think it's the case, but nevertheless. So we paid $4.6 billion. What they're, what they're aiming towards, I think, with this report is to create large uh, Aboriginal bureaucracies to suck another five or six billion dollars out of the Canadian population to solve the problem. And what they want to do with this is they want to do all kinds of interesting things. They want to create big bureaucracies that will overpower the individuals underneath it. So one of them is, and you've probably heard about this, they want to have a forensic archaeologist being trained that are Aboriginal, that will go around to every one of these schools, every one of these residents, and look for abnormalities in the, in the surface and dig down and see what they can find. And if they can find any human remains, they're going to then assess uh, the genetic structure of that and then send those uh, remains back to, uh, to the reserves where people have the closest uh, uh, genetic structure to those people. This is a huge, this is a billion dollar exercise, this, this alone. So if, if, if you know anything about you know, kids in school, kids in school have pets, right? So in the school that I was, was in, I won a, I won a, a, I won a, a husky dog in, in the middle of the wintertime. I actually got rid of it after a while. I give it to a dog trainer that was training huskies. But anyways, the kids had pets, and they had pets that were living in the school. So when these pets died, they buried them, or the pets did their business out in, in the yard, so you would have all of these kinds of things. In some of the schools, there were outhouses, and they would have fallen down and that sort of thing. So there'd be all kinds of things. They burnt their garbage, they dumped it out. So there'd be all kinds of things that people would be able to find by doing forensic anthropology, but most of it would be you know, just the, the, the normal sort of uh, garbage disposable things that people do. Now, are they going to find are they going to find any any bodies out there? If you read the report, they don't have any evidence except for the 3,201 kids that actually died out of we don't even know how many kids were in the schools. Perhaps 100, 150,000, but we don't even know if that's if that's true. Are they going to find more? There's all kinds of things on the internet saying that there's all kinds of kids being that were buried in Brandon, in all kinds of uh, residential schools, but the actual evidence is 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 not there. So I, I think those three things are you know what's what's coming down the tubes, and I'm wor I'm worried that all of these things won't necessarily do Aboriginal people well. It'll make their lives worse worse than it is. It'll make them more dependent upon and more dominated by uh, leaders than if we took another tr another attack on this whole on this whole issue. Any is solution to what's happening right now? Like in Manitoba, we have what eleven thousand kids with uh, child family services. Mm -hmm. I see you grab your head. <laughs> I know it's it's a big problem. Yeah. Uh, can you see yeah. in the future that someday? Uh, Canadian government is going to be sued again because uh, well, all these kids who were taken away from their parents, whoever the parents were. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. I, th I think this is, uh, we're going in the wrong direction on that. Um, when the white people ran, um, the, and it, my wife's sister was 
a social worker and she was going around Calgary about 20 years ago picking up kids from families, stable families, and taking them back to the reserve where there was nobody to look after these kids. Taking them out of families that were doing the best job that they could to a reserve where their relatives didn't want them and nobody actually wanted them. And now we've got the Aboriginal people running uh, the welfare system and we've got the same number. We get, we've got more kids uh, in, in care now. So is, is, is this bias on the ba basis of ethnic biases against these people or is it because these children are living in, in, in desperate situations and are not being able to, to function in those homes? The homes are too dangerous. When my wife went to residential school, here's another thing that you probably didn't know is that many of the southern residential schools, the kids only went to school for five days a week, and then they went home for the weekends. And that was true in southern Alberta. And in, in the residential school, old son that my wife went to, often there were kids there that stayed on the weekend because they had such disparate home lives that the, the administrators wouldn't send the kids home. Sometimes the kids would go home with their cousins, like my wife's cousins would come home with her to her house where it was stable and it was and it was a good house and they would get fed and slept and, and that sort of thing. But sometimes the other kids would stay in the residence all over the weekend and never get home, never go home. And some, some of the kids were terrified to go home in the summertime. And you never hear that, that they were terrified to go home in the summertime because they knew how they were going to be treated in their home communities and their, and their homes over, over that period of time. So I don't know, I don't know what the answer to this is. I think we have to have a fairer and, and a broader discussion of all of these things. And I think we're afraid to talk about it because if somebody, if somebody's an Aboriginal and they stand up and say, you're racist, we've got no, we've got no response to that. People have said that to me and people have, uh, uh, so I've heard through second hand, have made threats against me um, but if, if they simply intimidate people not to talk about these things that Canadians need to hear about, I think that's a real problem. If we follow the model that says the people that have the problem, <coughs> given support and opportunities, um, you should quite often have the solution themselves. Yeah. And, and I, I, um, yeah, I, don't, I can't exactly that, to empower the individuals rather than the groups. Because if you look at the groups, the groups often abuse each other and abuse people that are underneath them. So let me just give you an example of that. We had a big debate in Winnipeg uh, over the last few years about building the Freedom Road, right, for Shoal Lake number uh, 40. And if you look at that reserve, there are three parcels of land out there. One parcel of land uh, is across the spit of land where they take the water for Winnipeg. There's another two parcels of land 
Uh, one, is, one is close to uh, the Trans-Canada Highway and close to other communities, so they could have hooked into the water system and the sewage system if they would have lived out there. The houses on across the spit of land where they built the houses are uh, less than 40 years old, those houses. So you wonder why people built their houses there when they could have built their houses in other places. So what we decided to do, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the federal government, is to provide $60 million to them to build a road, right? Does that empower people when you do that? <coughs> My answer to that is no. What they should have done is they should have given $100,000 to each man, woman, and child who lived on that part of the land and let them make up their mind whether they want to move to Winnipeg, buy a house in Winnipeg, whether they want to build a road, or what they want to do with that money. So empowering the individual from the bottom rather than putting a solution on top of them and all of us buying into it because we're afraid to say that if we don't buy into it, we're racist against Indians. So we, I don't think I've done a very good job for them in, in responding in that sort of way. So I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But what do you do you know, when, it, when, a when a band that's being block funded out in northern Ontario, you know, complains in August that they run out of money and they go to the federal government, they go to Indigenous Affairs and Indigenous Affairs says, look, we give you the money, you were blocked funding, you were supposed to do it. And then they come to the Winnipeg Free Press and it blows up in the Winnipeg Free Press. And the next thing you know is that the federal government block funds them more. Does that really help people be responsible? This isn't really a question, just a comment. I've had a vast amount of experience, I think most of you know, in, in leadership, both in my church and in the scouting movement. Now, if we read the paper, we see that the Roman Catholic Church stands condemned because of priests molesting children. We don't quite so often see it anymore about the scouting movement being condemned because of scout leaders molesting children, but that was a nasty part of our history maybe 20 years ago. But neither of those things says to me that's a, an entirely rotten organization. I do not condemn the Roman Catholic Church. <coughs> I'm Lutheran and we've had 500 years of en enmity that's finally being buried a bit. But <laughs> But I do not regard the Roman Catholic Church as being a defective church simply because some priests were molesters. I do not regard scouting as being a, a horrid youth-serving movement because there were molesters in our leadership at one time. And I cannot conclude that the residential schools were evil simply because there were kids who had horrible experiences. I know full well that if you have any sort of a situation where children are being served in a group that attracts the wrong kind of people in fortunately very, very small numbers. But we've got to guard against making the assumption just because we hear bad reports that that tarnishes the entire organization or whatever it might be. I think that's true. So I just want to postscript on your road example. We've talked about this before. Um, I think the jury's out a little bit on that because the impact of that road, which is now happening, now more or less yeah. constructed, 
it is still not really known what the impact on the community might be, whether it's a psychological, cultural, or whatever. So I still think there could be quite an impact on that community. Yeah. They could be positive. It would be very interesting to see in the next year or two. I'll maybe come back and do a postscript on it because <laughs> see what that road, Band 40 Road, really has done for the community. Yeah. Okay, well, one more piece of information and then you can... Uh, somebody else has a question? Yeah, I just right. had a comment. Um, and and I've been, I've, I'm listening to everything you say and I Thank think you. that your arguments are well-founded and they're, and they're based in your experience. But I keep going back to the whole notion that sending our children at age five or six away from their parents for an extended period of time can't be good. Yeah. Was, yeah. Like aside from the abuse, which I think yeah. was horrendous and way bigger thing than we even knew, way bigger thing than we ever knew, and the results of that I think are pretty obvious in our our experience with Aboriginal people yeah. today. But even aside from all that, I keep thinking, in a million years I could not have sent my children away from me at age five or six, and that's I yeah. think the root. I personally feel that that's the root of yeah. all the difficulties yeah. and how adults in the church or the government or whoever with all the good intentions, and I have no doubt that you are a very caring person, but it's not possible to have the relationships yeah. that yeah. children need to grow up yeah. to be healthy individuals. Yeah. It seems to me that that's yeah. the root of all the difficulties yeah. with the residents. Yeah. Okay, so let's put it into the context of that time. In 1946 and 1947, I was sent to a sanatorium because I had tuberculosis and meningitis, right? And I was, uh, I, my parents were living in Jasper and I was in Vancouver in the sanatorium in Vancouver. The sanatorium was actually filled, filled with kids, most of whom in the ward that I was in, who had meningitis, died. So. You know, and, that, and that was a reality. And you just think about the orphanages and you think about the Aboriginal societies themselves. You know, when, when fathers and brothers went out you know, and they got into skirmishes with other groups or they froze to death or all. Like, 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 life was bloody awful in, in, in the past. It was awful. And, th and this, this was not a good idea to do that. But when you've, when you've got the choice of giving no education to these people or giving them education, what would our choices be? In the north, it was not possible to have schools because the people were in hunting camps that were really small, and you couldn't have schools. And they tried having, you know, really small uh, hostels in some of, in some of the more northern communities. Were kids forced to go to school? There's all kinds of contrary evidence on that. Some of the kids in the north, the parents would keep them home because they need them on the trap line. Some of the kids were sent to school because they needed new clothes and they would be provided with new clothes in um, uh, the school. Uh, many of the kids that come in when I was there, the young kids that come from the north, they were wearing exactly the same clothes, including the same underwear that they had left the school with two months earlier. They hadn't changed in that whole period of time. So when you put it into that kind of a context, then maybe that puts a little bit of different difference to it. We're not living, you know, in a modern world where we can have uh, communications and and, uh, and um, send teachers out or whatever. There's another thing we can add to that. And that is that up until the end of the Second World War, 
much of the leadership in both the government and in organizations across the country had had its background in the United Kingdom. And the norm of education in the United Kingdom was if you could afford, you sent your child to a public yeah. school, which meant that at age five or six, that kid might be shipped off to Eton or yeah. one of the other schools. And it was only the, the lower classes of society that kept their kids in the local grammar school rather than yeah. sent to the public school. So what we call public school here is what they call grammar school in England. What we call private school here is what I call public school in yeah. England. And yeah. In the United Kingdom, public school was the desired form of education. Yeah. So there was a mentality that pervaded Canada right up until 48. And said on, that that's better education than yeah. And on that, when they first started building schools, they built the so-called day schools. And kids had to apply, and the parents had to apply to go to residential school. So the kids had to sit a test, if you can imagine. And they had to and their parents had to apply to go to get into the residential school, following that very model. Now one more piece of information. The Roman Catholics ran the greatest number of schools in Canada. So they ran 68 schools, which is 43%. Uh, Church of England, the one that Philip that I belong to, ran 42 schools, 26.6%. Non-denominational, meaning that the federal government themselves ran 22 schools, 13.9%. So they ran schools themselves. United Church of Canada, with all of the variations on the United Church, uh, including the Methodists and Presbyterians in that whole history, ran 22 schools, 39 the Mennonites, three schools, and it was run under a, an outreach program called Northern Light Gospel Mission. So the Mennonites ran three schools. You never hear anything about the Mennonites running any of these schools. Anybody knew that the Mennonites run any of these schools? Absolutely not. Nobody heard about that. Everybody's keeping their head down below uh, the parapet. Uh, the Baptists ran one school in the Yukon. So, interesting. So only a few of the churches were involved in it. They didn't run, run all the schools. And uh, the federal government ran, uh, ran 22 of the schools. Uh, most of them are in the west. There's uh, one in Nova Scotia. There's uh, in uh, Quebec, on Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, uh, Alberta and BC, and the Northwest Territories and, uh, and uh, Nunavut and Yukon. Thank you very much. Thank you very Thank much you for listening.